This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. On today's show, Indigenous Identity Fraud. Some say it's it's almost encouraged by the policies that we have in academia in this country. The recent healthcare cyber attack in Newfoundland is being called the worst in Canadian history, and it has cybersecurity experts warning of more to come. And some really good news, movies are back. Blockbusters returning to the silver screen. How's it going for Hollywood? We'll find out. Can I have an interesting discussion here? And already getting some texts uh, from people saying, yeah, they've seen this before. Um, we're going it, to... It's all... This discussion which uh, has become, you know, sort of news in this country, has been going on for many, many years. But uh, the discussion this week centers around um, a woman named Carrie Bourassa, a University of Saskatchewan professor and scientific director of the Indigenous Health Arm of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, is now on leave from both of those institutions um, after uh, CBC did an investigation into her claims of being Indigenous and uh, found there's absolutely no evidence to back that up at all. Now the U of S has launched their own investigation to try and get to the bottom of this. Um, she headed up an indigenous research lab at the U of S. Uh, she publicly claimed to be indigenous, but there's no evidence. She's been asked to produce evidence, hasn't. She says she's hired a genealogist to prove it two years ago. Um, so the investigation continues, but at this point, she's been placed on leave from her positions. Now, the issue here is not necessarily just this one case, but the fact that there are many cases like this, and there's a problem, um, especially in academia, but in other circles, around this whole topic. So to get some information on what's going on here, we're going to chat now with Dr. Kim Tallbear, an associate professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, and the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and Environment. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us this morning. Oh, sure. You're welcome. It's a really interesting uh, story and one that um, sort of brings this issue to light for me anyway. But for people dealing with this and being around this for something, this is really no surprise, is it? No, it's unfortunately a pretty common phenomenon across academia and I think also in uh, arts uh, organizations and arts world as well. How does that happen? I mean, how, how? Why is it so common? I don't want to say common, but why does this? Why are there so many cases, and why is this something that happens in those circles? Well, I think it's there's a couple of reasons. There's first of all a very long history here, um, but practically, I think it uh, happens more in academia because we don't have any safeguards in academia mm-hmm. for making sure that people that we are hiring as Indigenous, actually have lived Indigenous experience and community affiliation. So this idea of ancestry alone being enough yeah. really prevails in the academy. So that's that's the first problem. The second problem is there's there's a very long history of, of playing Indian, as one his, Native historian calls it in his book. Uh, you know, we've got mascotting in, the, in sports. We've got uh, Boy Scouts and Campfire Girls since the early uh, 20th century dressing up and playing Indian. We've got your 
sexy Indian maiden Halloween costumes, mm-hmm. right? So there's many ways of playing Indian. Some of them involve temporarily dressing up. But around the mid to late 20th century, you see people start to take on these permanent indigenous identities in what we now call race shifting or, or uh, people on the Internet might call it pretendianism. A couple of things, Aaron, and I want to dig into it a little deeper. I think you make a really good point. Like, if you can prove ancestry, uh, you know, indigenous ancestry, great, fine, okay. But you know what? Who cares in some cases where if Mm -hmm. you're so far removed from that community and from those issues and those studies and and those relationships, really do you represent the indigenous voice on campus anyhow? Shouldn't that be the defining quality, your links to the community? Right, because the problem is people who get hired into positions or are funded as Indigenous filmmakers or artists or, you know, I'm on the news talking to you today, right? right. So we're often called to be commentators on Indigenous issues. And we, when you don't have lived experience in those right. communities, what happens is these people tend to portray us in really stereotypical ways, and then that informs policy. So we're always only the victims of violence, or we're these noble savages, right? And the truth is, Indigenous daily life is a lot more textual and complicated and interesting than that, or or maybe it's even more boring than that, right? But the point is, if they don't have lived experience combined with their intellectual knowledge and their degrees, they're not really going to be good spokespeople on our issues, and they should not be informing policy and decisions that affect our lives. Um, What is sort of, you know, is there a standard that has to be met here? I mean, I know there are to get, you know, treaty status and things like that, you have to have some sort of evidence, but in these, what, is it just, you just say it and that's it, that's, it's accepted? Oh, totally. In the academy, it pretty much is like that. Wow. So one of the things we want to do is we need uh, better systems within universities to figure this out. Now, it's sensitive, right? Like not everybody that has real lived Indigenous experience has federal Indian status. My mom has three of her six grandchildren. I'm from the U.S. who do not have tribal enrollment, as we call it down there. But they're still part of our family. They're still part of our community. So we all have relatives who don't have status or who don't have band membership. That is true. We're not talking about excluding people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do have to have safeguards to figure this out. So one of the ways is to hire, I think, into senior positions in the university, actual Indigenous people with these experiences. They will have the networks, both locally and nationally, to establish real relationships with Indigenous community. Uh, they'll be able, in the hiring process, to ask somebody about their relatives and relations and where they grew up. And I realize this isn't something that necessarily all academics do, mm-hmm. but Indigenous programming is different right? Uh, and so we really need those people with those networks uh, to, to do that work and to vet others who are going to be hired to do that work. Um, now I'm getting texts from people saying it's not just academia. This happens in other circles too. Business consultants, all kinds of things claim to have Indigenous ancestry and be involved in, and they're not. Uh, do you see right. it happening outside of academia as well? Yeah, it's just that I'm an academic, and right. so I've been I've been asked to be involved in conversations involving academia and arts organizations. But yeah, I'm aware it's in many other uh, sectors too. Um, why? I, I think I know the answer, but why? Why do people do this? I guess there are advantages to it, right? There are both uh, psychic advantages, although I'm not a psychologist, so I can't go too far down that road, and also material advantages. I mean, you saw the salary that Carrie Barasa was making. Uh, Incredible. Yeah. You know, at the University of Saskatchewan, right? There are real material benefits. And when people get these jobs and positions or or arts grants or funding, those are resources that are not actually going back to Indigenous community quite often. You know, uh, Indigenous scholars and people, you know, professionals, we're often 
giving a lot of money away to family members, to community causes. We're supporting activism. There's a lot that we support in our communities with our salaries. It's not just our individual career advancement. And that's the first difference for people that are community connected. But there's also this advantage of, and this is what this historian uh, Phil Deloria goes into in his book, Playing Indian, this 400-year history. I mean, the history in, in, in this continent is that settlers needed to destroy Native people or eliminate them or disempower them in order to take control of the land. But they also needed Indigenous people to teach them how to or show them how to feel close to this place so they could feel a sense of belonging and moral authority. So the conundrum is Indigenous people both need to be eliminated and replaced on the land, but they also kind of need us here in small numbers in order to to feel that they belong. And playing Indian is a great way to feel that you belong, you know, to get over your, your sense of complicity and historical guilt around colonialism. That's why I say, like, Seriously, somebody needs to look at the psychology of this, too, as well. Yes, absolutely. I, you're, yeah. you're 100% right. Uh, there, there's certainly, definitely something... Play, it's not just the material gain. There's other aspects to it as well. Yeah. So, as somebody involved in academia, and somebody who, you know, as, as, as I say, has been aware of this for some, some time, what's being done? Um, you know, are, are these institutions uh, taking a look at this? Will this case uh, give it another kick and maybe get it back to, okay, we need to have a better system in place? Is that work being ta- undertaken? Uh, I hope so. I have personally never seen uh, somebody be removed from their job duties like uh, Carrie Barasso was. Uh, that's not happened. That's unprecedented. So yes, we are having, this is a moment to have this conversation and it's very uncomfortable. You saw at Queen's University, they had a, a race shifting case that broke back in June when an anonymous report, Queen's doubled down and said, this is not an issue and did not take it seriously. I hope that they're, they're changing their mind now, but yeah, this is a moment in a window to have this conversation and it's very uncomfortable uh, and people need to do it anyway. And Kim, we're just getting a bunch of texts, people saying, well, why don't you just take a G, uh, 23andMe test or taking a simple genealogy test but I, you know and i understand what they're saying well that would that would yeah. solve it but i don't think it would because like no. we've discussed i mean there are lots of people who can probably point out to having indigenous ancestry i do but yep. for, for god's sake i have no ke- connection to the community no understanding of the issues mm-hmm. and i certainly can't speak to them isn't that more important no. Right. No, I wrote a book called Native American DNA that critiques the idea of genetic ancestry testing. I mean, is there, there's an academic out east, Daryl LaRue, who writes on this, a uh, non-Indigenous person who's descended from all of those French people, right? right? And there's a couple of Indigenous women in their ancestry 400 years ago. Me too. Justin Trudeau has the same ancestry. This is not being Indigenous, right? <laughs> so, yeah, a DNA test is not going to help you out here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's not going to make a difference. It's a really interesting discussion. We'll follow up. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Talbot. I appreciate your time. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Um, that's uh, Dr. Kim Tolbear, who is an associate professor and faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta and the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience and Environment. Time to talk cybersecurity now, and I don't know if you were brought up to speed on the story in Newfoundland that happened, uh, well, it was last weekend now, it's almost a week ago. Um, they were subjected to what we believe was a ransomware attack, and essentially, it shut down Newfoundland and Labrador's healthcare system. Completely shut it down. Now, it's not the first time that hospitals and healthcare has been attacked before, but that's when it really starts to concern people. When you start talking about essential infrastructure, healthcare systems, things like that, it starts to make people realize just how vulnerable we are 
in the cybersecurity area. They're talking about implications for national security here. This one has a lot of people talking and very, very concerned. So to chat about what happened and how we can prevent this from happening again, if we can, we're going to chat with Ritesh Kotak, who's a cybersecurity tech analyst. Uh, Ritesh, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what I'm hearing about this Newfoundland incident, they're calling it the worst attack in Canadian history. Would you agree with that? It's definitely one of the worst. When you actually impact the healthcare industry where literally surgeries and, and chemotherapy and, and appointments were getting cancelled and this has an impact on everyday individuals, yeah, it's 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 pretty bad. We have seen attacks that have attacked our, our, our food security, um, you know, for example, the JBS breach. We've mm-hmm. seen um, energy breaches as well. We saw that with the Colonial Pipeline. So uh, the frequency of this is increasing, and also the impact of this is now is increasing as well. It's not an organization that can't do e-commerce sales. It yeah. is our, our, it's our appointments that are getting canceled with our doctors. Yeah, this is bad. Um, and like you say, I mean, that's when people get really, really concerned. Do we know, like, how long was this... Um Offline, how long did it take before they got things back up and running again? So Newfoundland um, has been very, uh, they haven't been as transparent as probably we would we would right. like of giving us of giving us all, you know the detailed information now their their take on this is they'll want to tip off the hackers but it seems like over the weekend so on saturdays uh, is when they started to detect certain incidents um i think their system started to go offline they haven't even told us if this is actually a ransomware attack right. um, unless they've done any updates in the last little bit last time i checked it's um, our system, our systems are down, but based on everything that we've heard and and kind of what other experts are saying, it seems like it's a ransomware attack that happened on fr- on Saturday, and then since then, it just spread to other systems, and as a result, I guess they just pulled the pulled the plug and turned everything off. Yeah, um, like you say, we the speculation is it was a ransomware attack. It, all signs, that's what all the experts are saying they believe it to. But like you say, we're not getting 100% confirmation from the government. Um, but it raises an interesting question because there's the typical approach when we talk about ransomware, often the, the recommendation is don't pay them. You'll just encourage more of these attacks. Don't pay them. But when you're talking about a healthcare system or some other form of infrastructure, that's really not an option available, right? I mean, you have to react and react quickly. I think this speaks to the incident response of these types of incidents themselves. So, for example, um, if, if everything's encrypted and you don't have a backup of the data, which which you should have a backup, but there were even talks that potentially backups were corrupted or, or impacted as well. It just shows that there was a lack of cybersecurity protocols in in place. But you're you're right, and and this is one of those questions that a lot of countries, uh, organizations are wrestling with. Uh, the Biden administration came out very strong and saying, don't pay ransoms. Yeah. And, and the reason for that is, look, uh, you're dealing with criminal organizations here. Uh, you know, honor, honor amongst these uh, organizations is low to absent. So there's no guarantee, A, they're going to give you the decryption key. Yep. B, there's no guarantee that they're going to um, not come back and further extort you saying, hey, thanks for this X amount of Bitcoins. Now give me 10x because um, they know that you're willing to pay. And then thirdly, is you've got to remember when you're giving this money, you're actually funding criminal and terroristic organizations. Um, and these hackers are motivated financially. And the idea is if you don't pay and you take away the financial incentive, then these attacks will essentially stop. But that only works if we do the precautionary measures of having backups and having systems in place. Otherwise, your, your data is lost. And this is mission-critical data to run your organization. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, Joe Biden, and he, apparently there was some. He's he's talked to Putin about this, and he needs Putin to crack down on this. And what's our government doing? Do we have? I mean, there's a bunch of agencies that are taking a look at this and are in some way involved. Are we getting anywhere with the Canadian government on this? Well, these attacks keep happening, right? <laughs> um, I think I think that's I think that's the answer. Now, again, you got to remember with cybercrime, there's kind of two components, right? That that makes things very difficult. The first one is uh, jurisdiction. So clearly, where are these hackers located? Where's the money yeah. being transferred to? They use decentralized uh, cryptocurrencies that are almost impossible to trace. So there's jurisdictional issues. The second yeah. one also is attribution. You're hiding behind a computer. Who do you at? And you can make your location look like you're anywhere in the world using proxy servers and virtual private networks and some really complex security tools. So as a result, a it's finding out who that person is behind the computer, and then second, and then getting that data. You know, good luck. And then secondly, it's um, dealing with that jurisdiction to prosecute. Um, again, good luck. And the criticism uh, that Biden had for President Putin was um, you're, you're essentially creating a safe haven yeah. for these hackers and fraudsters, and we need you to crack down on them. But that also means that Russia admitting that they have a problem and they're harboring hackers. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know what? Bottom line, Ritesh, when we talk about this, you know, you can talk about government doing whatever they want, be it Putin or Biden or our government, whatever the case may be. Fact of the matter is these are criminals that we're dealing with. And whether they're state sponsored or not, there will still be criminals that try and exploit these systems. You have to take your defense into your own hands, right? You're absolutely right. That's exactly what you got to do. An ounce of prevention is better than a pound of yeah. cure. And I always and I always say I give the example um, you know, and, and we've seen this because of the pandemic. A lot of businesses have shifted online. We've got work from home. So there's additional threats that we might not have dealt with, you know, before March 2020. But this is, you know, we're living in a social cyber digital world. And I always said in the physical world, when the fire alarm goes off, we know exactly what to do, who yeah. to call. We get everyone to a safe place and we do roll call and take attendance. And, uh, you know, we call the fire department. We have plans in place. We've got fire extinguishers. Um, but we haven't done the same thing when the cyber alarms go off. You know, we practice fire drills, not cyber drills. And when things happen, we get caught um, because we don't have the right protocols in place. And this means, you know, taking cybersecurity seriously, um, in, you know, investing as, as a country um, and making these resources um, available to all Canadians, especially small to mid-sized businesses, um, because they're the most vulnerable here and they make up a big chunk of our economy. But clearly, critical infrastructure, um, as we've seen time and time again, they're vulnerable and we got to protect them. Otherwise, we're going to keep seeing more and more of these. So we practice fire drills. we got to start practicing cyber drills. Yeah, and this is the thing, Ritesh. You know, it's a healthcare system this weekend. Maybe next weekend it's uh, some other key component of infrastructure. Uh, all of it's vulnerable. That's what we're learning here. Hundred percent. We've also seen like um, we've also seen public transit get hit with ransomware as well. We've seen cities get hit with ransomware. As I mentioned earlier, we've had uh, food uh, major yeah. food producers, yeah. right? And that and so it's yeah, it's 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 healthcare today. Who is it going to be tomorrow? Scary, scary stuff. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Ritesh. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you bet. That is Ritesh Kotak telling us uh, what I think a lot of us already knew that this situation is just continuing unfettered. And the risks that we are running uh, are kind of scary. I mean, if you think about what happened in Newfoundland and Labrador over the weekend on Saturday, where essentially the healthcare system was shut down. Appointments couldn't happen, treatments, all kinds of things basically just halted 
and uh, what's next? That's the question. What's next? If you know, like he said, we we you talk about the uh, the meatpacking plants were hit hard by this. There was um, the fuel situation in the southeast United States was affected by. I mean, the list goes on to some pretty important components of the economy and society. Right now, though, we're going to bring in Carrie Bible, who is a media and box office analyst for Exhibitor Relations, an entertainment research company in Los Angeles. Carrie, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Hi, thank you for having me. So I'm really excited that movies are back. I think it's fantastic. It's How are they doing, though? That's the question. How far from where they were pre-pandemic have they come back? Because they're doing okay, aren't they? You know, they are, and there are a lot of signs of hope and reasons for us to have hope, but... You know, fully recovering from this situation is going to take time. And I did print up a few numbers I could I could regale you with if you want to hear them. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, um, for example, the November the weekend of November second through the fourth of twenty eighteen, the top ten box office growth combined was one hundred and twenty nine million. Okay. Top film was Bohemian Rhapsody. The first weekend of November of twenty nineteen. The top 10 box office growth was $99 million, hmm. film Terminator Dark Fate. Of course, 2020, as we know, yeah. is a wash across the Nothing board. there. And this past weekend, the top 10 box office growth was $61.9 million. So, so we're coming from $129 million to $99 million to $61 million. <laughs> So that is still a big drop. And what we're seeing with the trends right now is... When a big movie opens, like, say, Halloween Kills or James Bond, for example, they, they're very front-loaded. They do super well opening weekend, but then the second weekend, we're seeing anywhere from 50 to 70% drop-off. Wow. So it seems that it's very clear. People want to see that movie. They're going to see it first thing, and then that's it. They're not seeing longevity, necessarily. Or, you know what I mean, movies that keep grossing a lot of money week after week. So, yeah, like the the casual viewer who might be like, hey, let's go check out a movie. They're not there. It's the people who, I have to see this movie that are going. Exactly. And I think that this has been a really traumatic time. I probably don't have to tell you that, but for all of us. And I just think recovery, unfortunately, takes longer than we want. And it's probably going to take a while for things to be like they once were. And sometimes I wonder if they ever will be, especially with kids' movies, because of streaming yes. and the platforms at home where people could just, you know, buy a movie or get a subscription to Disney Plus, and it's for all the kids. So it's going to kind of be a lot of wait and see to kind of find out how things shake down, you know, over time. I think you're right. I think that whole streaming option that emerged during the pandemic, a lot of people tried that out and said, hey, this is pretty good. This isn't a bad way of doing this. I mean, everybody has big TVs and stuff. Like that. I mean, a lot of people will probably be very happy to stream whatever new movie it is rather than trudge out to the theater, which is probably not good if you're running a theater. Yeah, I mean, we deal with a lot of theater exhibitors, and it's it's been a very brutal yeah. time for them. It's heartbreaking. I still love going to the movies. That's still Me too. a precious and beautiful thing to me. And sadly, our historic Cinerama Dome in L.A. is still sitting here boarded up with plywood. So yeah. I know it's heartbreaking. So it's it's a really scary time. But I try very hard to cling to optimism or cautious optimism, <laughs> as I call it. But I, I really hope that this is going to come back. Again, it's just going to take time. This was a scary, traumatic crazy situation and unfortunately recovery is a slow moving beast you yeah. know 
Where are the studios in all of this? Because we know they parked a lot of the movies that they had spent a lot of money on, and they didn't want to put them out during the pandemic. Are some of these movies, I mean, the James Bond, for example, that's about as big as it gets in Hollywood. Are we starting to see them send some of the big, big properties out to the screens now more than they were? A little bit. Again, it's it's one of those things where you kind of want to hedge your bet, yeah. so to speak. So I'm hoping that um, Eternals is looking really good for this weekend. Um, hopefully, it's going to be interesting to me to see how Clifford the Big Rag Dog does for Paramount because, again, it's a kids movie, so it's going to be interesting to see if families willing to take kids. I know right now in California, they're just starting to roll out vaccines for kids. So yeah. that has to be something to keep your eyes on. Uh, Thanksgiving weekend, we've got Encanto, the new Disney movie, a Resident Evil movie, the House of Gucci movie. So Thanksgiving, usually that is a huge weekend typically speaking. So it's, again, it's going to be interesting to see when we get to certain benchmarks, how things perform. And then of course, Christmas, yet another big time. Sure. Uh, the score of West Side Story is coming out December 10th, December 17th, Spider-Man No Way Home, December 22nd, The Matrix 4. So, I mean, stuff is starting to roll back out into the pipeline and that's, that's good. I Personally, for me, I just hope so badly that this doesn't come roaring back. I, I've been sort of worried that it's going to be like a Freddy or Jason or Mike Myers in a horror movie. <laughs> Just when you think you have defeated the monster, you know, it comes back for another, you know, another rampage. So I've been, again, cautiously hoping that does not happen. Yeah, and so far so good. And you mentioned some of the big movies, and I know there's like uh, Belfast, Ghostbusters. I know a lot of people are eagerly waiting for that. So maybe the studios are starting to feel a little more confident. And if we can just... Hold this together and get things back on track. We'll all be because we love the movies, Carrie. We all love going to the movies, right? Oh, yeah, of course. I, you know, I may sound old fashioned, but that's one of the big joys in my yeah, life. Like, me too. I, simple pleasures I never thought I would not have for a long time. Yep. So I miss it. I cherish it, and I, I think even younger people do too. You know, I don't think it's just a generational thing. So. I, I've heard really good buzz on the Ghostbusters movie, and I really hope that turns out to be great. And uh, Oscar season's around the corner. I'm, 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 I'm hopeful. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, Carrie. I appreciate that. I am, too. Well, Thanks thank for joining us. So All righty. That is Carrie Bible, who is a media and box office analyst for Exhibitor Relations and Entertainment Research Company in Los Angeles. Yeah, Ghostbusters. That's one movie we didn't talk about. I know a lot of people are eagerly awaiting that. Um, We'll see. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.